Open with me, dear friends. Something I've been asked to speak about, though I had not personally planned to. First Samuel chapter 17, please. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Sukkah and Azekah in Ephestamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath, Goliath, from Gath, whose height was six cubits, and a span. Now one cubit is about a foot and a half. This is a big guy. And he had a bronze helmet on his head. Bronze has to do with judgment in the Bible. And he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves. These are like shin guards on the, on the legs. On his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. Now I'm not going to go into the typology now, but the shield carrier going before him, it's a picture of the Antichrist and false prophet. Whenever you see a human being with this kind of demonic power, it teaches something about the Antichrist. Turn with me very briefly, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 18. Now it came about after this that there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Zibachai the Hushatite struck down Shaf, Saf, who was among the descendants of the giant. That giant, of course, we know who it was. And there was war with the Philistines again at Gob. And at Elchanan, the son, and Elchanan, the son of Yer-Oregim, the Bethlehemite, someone from Bethlehem, killed Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was war again, and there was a man who had a great stature, with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. You see that? Twenty-four in number. And he also had been born to the giant. And when he de defiled Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, stuck, struck him down. These four were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Someone from Bethlehem had to destroy this one with all the sixes. Now, separate subject, I'm only pointing it out in passing. The Lord will destroy him with the breath of his coming. Verse 8, And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants. Now it's not our main purpose today, but understand this. By the, by the hand of no man will the Antichrist fall, you understand? It has to be only one man is going to bring him down. We're told in Revelation. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, we'll become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. The ultimate outcome is the battle between the Bethlehemite and the giant. Again the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse or Eshai. And he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. And the three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, God is my father, the firstborn, and the second, Abinadav, and the third, Shammah. And David was the youngest. Now the three oldest 
followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. And the Philistines came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. 40 in the Bible is always the number of testing. Always. Israel sojourned 40 years in the wilderness. Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Jonah gave Nineveh 40 days to repent. Jesus gave Jerusalem 40 years to repent, etc. 40 is always the number of testing in the Bible. Then Jesse said to David his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cups of cheese to the commander of their thousand, and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For Saul and Nay and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elach, fighting with the Philistines. And on our tours of Israel, we always bring people to this valley. So David arose in the morning and left the flock with a keeper, and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. And he was talking with them. Behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines. And he spoke these same words, and David heard them. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Now free meant tax exempt. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him saying, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Notice David's motive was not personal indignation. He was angry over what it represented. It was an affront to his God. In the ancient Near East, if you won a victory over someone, it meant in the thinking of the people that their God was stronger than your God. And the people answered him in accord with the word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you've come down in order to see the battle. In other words, to see us lose. <laughs> but David said, <clears throat> What have I done now? Was it not just a question? He answered, asked the wrong question. Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as previously. And when the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him, and I killed him, or smote him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, 
since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, may the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. And David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. And he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand. And he approached the Philistine. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Notice it's a conflict between deities. We see this in Revelation. We see it in Daniel. These physical conflicts are reflections of wars in the heavenlies, as Ephesians puts it, which has nothing to do with binding and loosing. Nonetheless, let's look. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Sounds like what God will do to the armies of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear. What does it say in Ephesians? We struggle not against flesh and blood. What are the weapons of our warfare? For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hands. Then it happened when the Philistines rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. A spiritual battle, physical battles, are reflections of spiritual ones. There is no New Testament basis as such to mix our political views with our Christian views, except we are called to pray for those in authority and to contend on moral issues. Nonetheless, the scripture is clear. There is no doubt in my mind, for instance, that Adolf Hitler was demon-possessed. He was a madman. His gods were, in effect, although he was a Roman Catholic, his gods were the Teutonic war gods of ancient Germany. He had the same beliefs as the Huns. Churchill understood this and spoke of, spoke of them openly as the Huns. And there was a battle. Various times the Roman Catholic Church has tried to destroy the power of the gospel by force of arms. Tried to destroy Britain with the Armada, etc., etc. 
In the Middle East today, what you see happening, it's a reflection of a war in the heavenlies. Revelation and Daniel speak of this. That prince over Persia that Daniel saw, that principality. Well, the, the only thing that Islamic fundamentalism is, Shia Islam, Khomeini's people, that's all it is, is that, that same principality that Daniel saw, it's the same thing. Now, people get into all this binding and loosing nonsense, that's, that's not scriptural. But these demonic powers are there. There's demonic powers over Africa. When did the Holocaust happen in the 1930s and 40s? When evangelical Protestantism was replaced by liberal higher criticism, liberal Protestantism. The preaching of the gospel went down in Germany and liberal higher criticism replaced it out of Tübingen University. So once the influence of the gospel receded, what did the Germans do? They did what they did in pre-Christian Germany. They became barbarians. Now that the power of the gospel is declining in Africa, in southern Africa, what's happening? I didn't like colonialism. I don't like imperialism. But I also know there's two sides of the coin. When the British were ruling this continent, you didn't have genocide. You didn't have intertribal hatred. You didn't have Rwandas. You didn't have Ugandas. You didn't have Burundis. You didn't have Sierra Leones. You didn't have Biafras. You didn't have Ethiopias. You didn't have Central African Republics. Zulus and Khorsas would not have riots and kill each other. Now, unfortunately, they preached the gospel, but they didn't live it. Otherwise, they would have treated the black man as Christ would have treated a black man. Nonetheless, when the power of the gospel goes, what comes? Some gormas? Yes. But there's a bigger giant marching on this continent. I've seen this giant from Asia to the Middle East. I've seen this giant in England. Now I see this giant in South Africa. This giant was responsible for the genocide, the genocidal massacre of Christians in Sudan. This giant is responsible for unspeakable persecution of Christians in Nigeria. This giant has marched as far south as Malawi. And this giant has now shown its head in Cape Town. I watched a boxing match with Fred the other day. Between a Corsa boxer named Bungu, who is supposedly an educated Corsa, a school teacher. He was battling Nazim Hamed, a very arrogant Muslim boxer from Great Britain who most people feel should have been disqualified from some of his previous fights because he cheats. He's a cheat. Even this educated Korza bought a Sangorma with him, with a bag of muti. That's an educated Korza. But Nazim began chanting in England, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, angry. Proclaiming Allah, there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Islam will always follow a champion. It always needs one. Their strength will always come from following somebody. They need a Saddam Hussein, they need a Khomeini, they need a Muhammad Ali. They need somebody who they see as the embodiment or the personification of the strength of their religion. And their strength comes by being identified with this champion figure. It's part of the cultural mentality of Islam. 
And Nazim is an ambassador for Islam in England. What Islam says in England is this. Look at the crime. Look at the immorality. We'll solve your problems. Turn to Islam. We have a higher moral standard. We have Sharia. We'll stop the crime. But then they mock. They mock the church. I see them in Speaker's Corner in London. I read their literature. Look, they're ordaining homosexuals. We don't have homosexual imams, but you have homosexual bishops. Look at your religion. When one of your bishops denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you don't have to believe it, two-thirds of your other Anglican bishops defended him in Britain. You expect us to believe something your own leaders don't believe? That your Jesus rose from the dead? Allahu Akbar! They mock. They arrogantly mock the church. And the Church of England, the Anglican Communion, deserves to be mocked. It's a mockery. It's a self-made mockery. Desmond Tutu deserves to be mocked. George Carey deserves to be mocked. They're like Saul. The spirit has left them. But the arrogant giant marches. He taunts. I was meant to debate Ahmed Didat in Johannesburg Town Hall a few years ago. He had the stroke. So I went to his house in Durban to witness to him. Couldn't speak, he could only blink on a signboard. And that's how he would talk to me. But I believe the Lord showed me that the judgment on Didat is a microcosm of the coming judgment on Islam. His organization was bankrupt and riddled with scandal. He was broke. He couldn't talk or make himself heard. He was paralyzed. He was frustrated. And that is how Islam will wind up. Bankrupt, paralyzed, frustrated, unable to make itself heard, but still demonically given over to eternal damnation. Frightening. You're not going to find a better Christian in the world than somebody truly saved out of Islam. But in the meantime, that giant is marching. I had a meeting a few years ago with P.W. Botha, the old man, near where he lives in Wilderness. He openly told the ANC people, this is not political, your organization is being funded by Kabul, the Islamic business community. They wouldn't deny it. You think Pagad is people against drugs and gangs? Pagad is militant Islam with an agenda to Islamize your country. The giant is moving south. And they are arrogant. They are vile. They taunt and mock the enemies of the living God. They're vicious. They're animalistic. They're rude. I watched on CNN last night about the Hajj. Islam is the fastest growing institutionalized religion in the world. They try to misrepresent themselves as a religion of tolerance. Find me one Islamic country that's a democracy. Click on the Amnesty International website and find out what they would do to you and your children if you lived in Saudi Arabia, while America and Britain protect them. They hung a 15-year-old boy after the war in the Gulf for becoming a Christian. Look what they do to Christians. Death. You see, Muhammad said originally, when Muslims were in the minority in Arabia, that there must be no coercion in matters of religion. 
Once he became the majority, he really explained what jihad meant. How did Islam reach the Far East? By peaceable proclamation of Quran? By putting a sword to people's throat. How did Islam reach Morocco? Those people were never Arabs, they were Berbers. The Arabs invaded them, took their land, and put a sword to their throat, and said, renounce your Christianity or we'll kill you and your children. That is Islam. Islam tried to invade Eastern Europe, but were stopped by the Khazar Empire, who converted to Judaism. They tried to invade Western Europe, but were stopped by Charles Martel. They tried twi twice to invade Central Europe via Yugoslavia, and twice reached the outskirts of Vienna. And they will try again. The giant is now marching south. You don't understand Islam if you have never lived in the Muslim world. They see the crime. They see the homosexuals in the Anglican Cathedral in Cape Town. They see all these things. They see the homosexuality. They see what's happened. And they say, we'll solve your problem. No, they are your problem. But the church can't stop it anymore. While Islam taunts, the house of Saul stands there powerless, impotent before it. Desmond Tutu saying, my Muslim brothers who are murdering black, stop Islam. Now something about Islam is this, similar to Roman Catholicism, it lends itself to mixing with paganism. This is what happened in Uganda with Idi Amin, a Muslim who came under the influence of Sangormas and the genocide that resulted. It lends itself to this kind of mixture. But the house of Saul cannot stop it. It is a big, powerful giant. The idea you can placate it is absurd. Look at the Coptic Christians in Egypt. They didn't bother anybody. You think Islam can be placated? Yet onward they march. They mock and they taunt and nobody can stop it. Nobody. Rayma can't stop it. Tutu can't stop it. The church Ed Raybert's left in Pretoria can't stop it. The TBN can't stop it. And they know they can't stop it. So Tutu says, my Muslim brothers. Macaulay goes to the Parliament of World Religions. Praise with these kinds of people. And this goes on and on and on. But then there's somebody who looks after his father's sheep. The Hebrew word for shepherd and pastor, as you know, is the same word, ro'eh. He's looked down on. Who left you with those few sheep? You have a little congregation. Look at this, compared to Rama. You're not famous like Desmond Tutu. Who do you think you are with your few sheep? <laughs> well, I know what you are with your big flock, a loser. You're a loser, Ray McCauley. You're a loser, Desmond Tutu. You can't stop the Sangormas. You can't stop Islam. 
You can't save the fate of this nation for Christ. You can't do it. You're a loser. And you know you're a loser. Your hype, your delusion. Rodney Howard Brown, you can have people falling down drunk and laughing, but the giant is still marching on this land. They can get drunk all they want. What about the giant? I've been to the Muslim world. I know what's coming here. I know what is marching on your land. I know what your future is, and I understand why people are afraid. You have something to be afraid of. It's the one with the few sheep. God prepares people for the extraordinary in the ordinary. Satan goes around like a lion to see whom he can devour. Can you rescue one lamb from the lion's mouth? Can you rescue one new believer from the clutch of the devil? He who is faithful in little is faithful in much. Can you protect the little flock? If you can protect the little flock from the wolves, from the lions, from the serpents, and from the bears, in the fullness of God's time, you will be able to protect the big one. You see, Tutu, Macaulay, Howard Brown, they don't protect the sheep from the wolves. In many cases, they are the wolves. God prepares people for the extraordinary in the ordinary. Never despise the day of small things. In small groups, in small churches, in small fellowships, you identify and develop your gifts, your ministry. In small situations, God trains and raises up leaders. Others don't recognize them. Others think they're insignificant. But they're the ones who can take on the giant. And when their father sends them forward on behalf of their brothers, their brothers knock them. Their brothers mock them. We know your insolence. Who left you with your few sheep, your little church? Why have you come here? In other words, you're showing us up for what we are. Losers. You're letting people know that we can't stop the Philistine. So they have to attack personally, accuse you of false motives. But what did David say? Why are you angry? All I did was ask a question. They don't like to be questioned. People involved in heavy shepherding Never like to be questioned. But then David said, let me face the Philistine. So Saul said no, but David said yes. Saul said, go ahead. Here's the armor. You want to bring down the Philistine, don't waste your time trying to wear Saul's armor. It's too heavy. It's too cumbersome. You don't need their armor. It didn't do Saul any good against the Philistine. In times like this, putting new wine in old wineskins, forget about it. You don't need the Anglican Communion. You don't need the Assemblies of God. 
You don't need the Methodists or the Presbyterians, and above all, you don't need Rhema. Didn't work for them, why should it work for you? It'll only slow you down. It's cumbersome. It'll make you unable to maneuver. These dead church structures, their way of making war doesn't work. It'll only hold you back. It's more difficult to hit a moving target. You get stuck with them. It's too heavy. You make yourself easy prey. They'll pick you right off. It's got to be somebody that comes out of nowhere. Somebody who everyone thinks is insignificant. Somebody that seems so ridiculous. In Britain, we have the Royal Special Air Service. They began in the Second World War when the Germans were making fools out of the Royal Army from Dunkirk to North Africa when the British Army were being humiliated by the Germans in battle after battle. Churchill said I should order firing squads to shoot my generals. He said defeat is one thing, disgrace is another. Even when they had the advantage, the Germans would make fools out of the British. But they had these people who were commandos in the SAS. They would do things like parachute on back of German lines. They would assassinate German military commanders. They would blow up bridges. They would blow up dams. They would blow up factories. A small group of people would take out much bigger groups of people because they were not part of the normal command structure of the British Army. They were like an army within an army. They did their own thing. Not anybody could get in it. They wouldn't even take other paratroopers or commandos. They were looking for certain kinds of people, and still do. I have a friend who's a Christian who was saved out of the SAS. Basically, it was like this. If you were very fit, you could be a paratrooper or a commando. Very fit. If you were very bright, you would be in military intelligence. But to be in the SAS, you had to be both. Very fit and very bright. Small groups of people could do what bigger ones couldn't do when your enemy is better than you are. The enemy is arrogant. He mocks. You've come against me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have taunted. Keep your armor, Saul. I don't need it. I don't need your credentials. I don't need your kinds of Bible college. I don't need your denominational label. I don't need your loser way of doing things. You're a loser. David takes a stick. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The shepherd's staff. It's both something to lean on and something to kill with. The correction of the Lord, but also the protection and sustenance. And he takes five smooth stones from the brook. Five. These five books, five stones, represent the five books of the Torah. The Jewish Bible is five books. What does it say in 2 Corinthians? The ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory in verse 7. The stones are the five books of the Torah. That's the law. Ministry of death. Sure killed Goliath. He goes up to Goliath. One shot. Right in the globula. Brings him down. 
One shot. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Oh, Goliath had the sword. But David had the word of God. How did he learn to use it so aptly, so skillfully, with such precision, with such devastating accuracy? Protecting the little flock of sheep. What happens in fellowships like this one? How well you learn to use this weapon. How well you learn in a little place like this to protect the sheep. That is going to determine the spiritual destiny of this nation. Not Saul's army. They've lost already. He brings them down. But then he chops off Saul's head with what? Whose sword? Saul's. Whenever you go up against a false religion, whenever you go up against a cult, that's always the way it is. You bring them down with the word of God, but you cut off their head with their own sword. Islam? Habibi kifalak mabsot? I've got the Quran here. Umar, you're one people. No, 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 no. How come if you're one people? King Hussein of Jordan killed 20,000 Palestinians. How come Iran and Iraq killed 1.5 million of each other? How come Saudi Arabia invaded Kuwait? How come your jihads are mainly Muslim killing Muslim? Look at your stupid religion. It doesn't even work for you. Why should we believe it? You know, Ummah. No two Christianized democracies have ever had a war. You know that? No two Christian democracies have ever had a war? If there's ever a war in the Christianized world, one of the countries wasn't democratic. Not one Muslim country is a democracy. You're always having jihads against each other. Jihad? How come that your armies are continually humiliated by the Israelis? How come the only reason the Israelis gave up land to you is because they were forced by international pressure? With your jihad, you were just humiliated time after time. How come the only reason the extermination of Muslims stopped in Yugoslavia was because of international pressure. When it was your Islamic armies of jihad, you were humiliated. You cut off their head with their own sword. You bring them down with the word of God, but you cut off their head with their own sword. Roman Catholicism? Show them the word of God but then cut off their head with their own sword. Hey, you know your two greatest theologians? Thomas Aquinas and Augustine of Hippo both denied the Immaculate Conception. How come you canonize them as saints? If they said Mary was not immaculately conceived. Who's right? You were your saints. Cut off their head with their own sword. I witnessed to Orthodox Jews. Oh, so you say Isaiah 53 is not about the Messiah. Well, the Targum Yonatan says it is. Oh, you say Zechariah 12 is not about the Messiah. Well, Rashi said it is. Who's right? You were your sages. You cut off their head with their own sword. Mormonism? We did an outreach two Junes ago in Salt Lake City to the fundamentalist Mormons and the mainstream Mormons. I met one of eight wives. And they had these t-shirts that said, Brigham Young said it, that settles it, I believe it. Brigham Young said it, that settles it, I believe it. Tell me, 
You're really convinced there's Quakers living on the moon. What are you talking about? Well, it says on your shirt that Brigham Young said it. That settles it. You believe it. What do you, what do you mean? Well, here's the Journal of Discourses, volume 17. You see, there's Quakers living on the moon. Joseph Smith said they're on the moon, and Brigham Young said they're on the sun. Mormons will always give you their testimony when they can't get out of an argument. What's their testimony? I have a burning in my bosom, and I testify to you the Church of Latter-day Saints is true. <laughs> Deal with the issue. You said in your shirt, if he said it, that settles it, you believe it. Do you believe this Quakers on the moon? I testify to you the Church of Latter-day <laughs> I get a whole lot of them looking at me. I get a whole crowd of Mormons. And I testify to you, I have a burning of my bosom, and I just know there's Quakers are living on the moon. <laughs> Cut off their head with their own sword. Jehovah's Witnesses, I love when they come to my door. Every time you nail them with the Bible, they try to change the subject. But I don't let them do that. Then I pull out the back itches of the watchtower and awake. Then they literally run out the door. <laughs> you cut off their head with their own sword. You've got to think strategically because they spy on each other. What you've got to do is you'll find one's the senior and one's the junior. You've got to discredit the senior one in the eyes of the junior one and plant that in his head. Always works. You bring down a Goliath with the stones, the word of God, but then you decapitate him with his own sword. What is his sword? Pay attention. Every cult, every false religion worships the ism. Hear what I said? Every cult, every false religion worships the ism. It's a peculiar form of idolatry. If you really understand Roman Catholicism, Roman Catholics don't worship God. They don't even really worship Mary. They worship Catholicism. Rabbis don't worship God. They really don't believe the Torah as such. They believe what other rabbis said about it. In other words, rabbis worship rabbinic Judaism. Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't worship Jehovah. They worship the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. They worship the organization. That's the God. Mormonism, Latter-day Saints, they don't worship Jesus Christ. They have a different Jesus anyway. They worship Mormonism. Muslims worship Islam. They don't worship God. Every false religion, every cult worships the ism, the institution. Every one of them. You bring them down with the word of God and you decapitate them with their own sword. What happens when you bring them down? Verse 51, when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. I wish Rabbi Shmuley Boteach didn't cancel his debate with me because his followers would have fled. Not because I'm so brilliant, but because I can shoot these five stones better than he can. And I'll take his own sword and chop his head right off. I wish D-Dot didn't have the stroke. He was publicly humiliated by Josh McDowell. They immediately pulled all the videos and tapes out of circulation because they didn't want Muslims to see it. Works every time. 
That's what's happening. That's what you have to understand in this fellowship and others like it. When I come here or Dave Hunt comes here, so we come. It's what happens after we leave that determines whether or not the visit was successful. Take care of the few sheep. Learn to kill that one lion and rescue that one lamb. How well can you look after one newly saved person? How well can you love and care for one of the father's sheep? How committed are you to the small flock? These other guys have lost. There is no possible way, no way, that the mainstream churches and denominations in this country will stop the avalanche of paganism and Islam. No way. Rodney Howard Brown can't stop it. Ray McCauley can't stop it. Desmond Tutu can't stop it. Don't wear Saul's armor. They'll never stop Goliath. Goliath will mock and mock and mock and taunt and taunt and taunt till somebody shuts his mouth. But the only way you shut his mouth is by shooting a stone into his head. And you pick up his sword and you chop his head off once and for all. That's how you stop Goliath. Ramah is not going to stop Goliath. The vineyard movement is not going to stop Goliath. Those people in that casino listening to Rick Godwin's false doctrine are not going to stop Goliath. The Anglican communion is not going to stop Goliath. The Methodists and Presbyterians and the Assemblies of God are not going to stop Goliath. Malcolm Heading is not going to stop Goliath. They're not going to stop Goliath. Here's the question. Are you going to stop Goliath? God bless.